This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Let's kick this thing off. Travis Kling is the founder and chief investment officer at Guy Asset Management. In this conversation, we discuss the great accelerator, quantitative easing, modern monetary theory, inflation, the strong dollar, politics, China, the generational divide, and Bitcoin. I really enjoyed this conversation with Travis, and I hope you guys do as well. Before we get into the episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. The first is BlockFi. They've got three products. You can deposit crypto and they'll give you a US dollar loan. You can deposit crypto and earn up to 8.6% APY in their interest-bearing accounts, or you can buy and sell crypto on their brand new crypto exchange. Later this year, they're gonna be launching a Bitcoin credit card. That's right, a regular credit card that pays your rewards in Bitcoin rather than dollars or loyalty points. I'm an investor and a user and a huge fan of the company. Go check them out, especially the interest-bearing accounts where you can earn up to 8.6% APY. You can go to BlockFi.com slash POMP. Again, BlockFi.com slash POMP to learn more. Also, don't forget that I write a daily letter to over 50,000 investors about business, technology, and finance. I break down complex topics into easy-to-understand language while sharing opinions on various aspects of each industry. You can subscribe at PompLetter.com. Again, pompletter.com, or go in the description of this podcast and click on the link there. All right, let's get into this episode with Travis. I hope you guys enjoy it. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys. Bang, bang. Travis is back. What's up, man? Hello, good sir. How are we doing? We're great. This is uh, quarantine time now. You got a beard. We're doing it remotely. Ready for round two? Yeah. Round one was uh, quite popular. Don't disappoint. (laughs) Uh, For those that don't know you, let's start with uh, what you do and where you come from. Yeah, so I I run a a crypto hedge fund called Ikigai Asset Management. Uh, We launched December 2018. We're primarily focused on the liquid part of the crypto market. And to be honest with you, these days, uh, we, we mostly just trade a lot of Bitcoin, mostly. Um, I came from a traditional hedge fund investing background, uh, specifically in the energy industry. So I, I worked at a hedge fund called Magnetar Capital for four and a half years, doing long, short energy equities and non-controlled private equity and debt in the energy space. And then in the middle of 15, I went to uh, 0.72 in New York. Steve Cohen's hedge fund was a portfolio manager there running a, a long short equities book of uh, energy and materials equities, a little bit of commodity, a little bit of options. Uh, fell down the crypto rabbit hole summer of 17. Um, not being a tech guy, not a tech investor, not much of a tech kind of guy. Um, and convinced myself that this was the most significant technological innovation since the internet the first time around. And as such was likely to be the most significant investment opportunity of a generation. So I uh, decided to start my own investment firm. 
when we launched in December of 18, um, we had qualitative research as a pretty big part of our investment process. And over the last, uh, going on nine months now, starting in, in September of last year, we evolved our investment strategy into something much more systematic, models-driven, and primarily quantitative. So it's kind of started off as, as, as something a little bit more qualitative, and now we trade, we trade Bitcoin pretty systematically. Um, and so all the stuff we're going to talk about today is, is like all of the, not even just the crypto qualitative stuff, but it's, get, but it's the really big picture macro qualitative stuff that's like wrapped up around it. And then there's, there's little $150 billion Bitcoin, you know, right in the middle of these, you know, these really big things. So there's a lot to talk about. So uh, when you made that switch from qualitative to uh, more quantitative uh, or systematic uh, performance went off the charts, that's all we can say. I yeah. know because we're LPs uh, in the hedge fund, uh, which is important to get out of the way. Um, but let's start with, uh, we are just living in a crazy, crazy world. Uh, and I think that you've used... Um, a number of different frameworks to think through this, uh, but one of them um, is kind of the great accelerator. And so maybe let's just start there with like what that means and uh, maybe you can explain a little bit of like why it's important. Yeah. So, so you and I have been talking about doing this for probably a, a month or so now and even longer than that, because I think I remember kind of in, in like mid to late March, and you were asking about doing a, an episode. And I honestly, there was so much going on that I didn't know what was going on. And I was like, I, I don't have a view on any of this stuff yet, because it's such a tremendous amount of change that's going on in real time right now. And so I, I think over the course of, of April, some of these things started you start getting more clarity around some of the broad directions that these various different things might, might take. And if you think that, you know, maybe there's half a dozen or so big factors that you want to say, okay, what's going to happen in, in this factor and that factor and that factor. And at the beginning, you have such a broad spectrum of outcomes that it's like impossible to develop a base case on, 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 on any of these things. But then I, I feel like over the last, three or four weeks, it's, I've at least been able to start to develop these base cases. And then you can definitely change your mind, right, as new information becomes available. But you can at least have maybe like a base case to work off of. And then as new stuff comes about, you see whether or not you're right or not, right. And so this concept I keep coming back to is uh, Corona as the great accelerator. And there's just, on, on all of these different fronts, it seems like Corona just um, accelerated things that were already well on their way. And, and you can think about that at like a, a very like micro uh, personal level. And you could say, oh man, you know, I was using Postmates a pretty good amount. And uh, it seemed like this whole cloud kitchen thing was like going to get some legs to it. Okay, you just saw an incredible acceleration of that trend that was already in place, right? And you can think about it on, on a bigger picture, you know, work from home, right? That was a trend that was ongoing. 
And then you can think about um, the really, really big stuff. So like uh, quantitative easing, MMT, China, um, the strong dollar, um, globalization versus deglobalization, the, this generational divide. And then those are these big pieces I was talking about. And then it's like, I think we're going to talk a while before we actually start talking about Bitcoin. But I think a Bitcoin is just, it's just the thing that's sitting right in the middle of all that. So. And it feels like uh, this idea of the great accelerate uh, really isn't just a financial thing, right? You, you mentioned kind of the idea of uh, everything from food delivery and cloud kitchens. But if you really go even further than that, work from home, if you look at, you know, colleges and universities, kind of the questioning of like, why are we paying so much money if we can do the same thing online uh, and, and not have to pay for such a, a kind of high touch experience? Um, if you then even go even farther and start talking about like, okay, well, there was a lot of talk about high valuations, right? We saw WeWork kind of blow up and now all of a sudden there's a lot of companies under pressure. Um, it just feels like this is something, I, I've used the terminology like the virus exposed the shams of society. So mm -hmm. that's kind of the the structural things that were there. No one really wanted to talk about them, but like, bam, now they're there front and center. But I think what you're talking about is more the trends that are, that are lay on top of that structure, right? The things yeah. that the world was changing already, now people are being forced to literally accelerate that change, right? Yeah, yeah no, no, that's exactly right. And so, you know, you know friendly reminder, because it's easy to lose track of all these things that have happened, right? So the Fed's expanded their balance sheet by just shy of $3 trillion in the last, uh, you know, less than 90 days. Um, but uh, we were doing QE before anybody ever said coronavirus. The, the Fed cut rates three times before anybody ever said coronavirus. The repo market blew out five months before anybody said coronavirus. The, the Fed funds flipped the, the overnight offer rate a year ago. A year ago that happened. And so, so these, these pieces that were, that were in place, um, you know, well before any of this coronavirus stuff started happening, and specifically like this dollar shortage situation, which you've had, you know, a few guests on that have talked about it. Brent, Brent Johnson with his dollar milkshake theory, Jim Bianco. I call these guys the macro voices cohort. It's the guy that Eric Townsend has all the time, which I've been listening to, to that podcast religiously. They've done a great job. Uh, Luke Grauman goes in that bucket. Uh, Daniel DiMartino Booth goes in that bucket. Uh, and, and they all have, you know, a, a lot of similarities around their, their viewpoint. Um, but they were talking about how dire this dollar shortage situation was before anybody ever said coronavirus. And then you can just look at the magnitude and the ferociousness with which the Fed and the Treasury reacted when this hit. And you know that they knew how tight everything was beforehand. And, and, and that's how you got a situation where in the second week of March, you had capital markets seize up so much, right? And it's, it's real easy to think about this. If the VIX is going up at the same time that gold is going down, there's a, you're, you're having a big problem in a financial market. And it's a Lehman-esque type of problem. And I didn't think in the second week of March that it looked like um, 
it looked like an investment bank was going to go down because the banks have, you know, had to recapitalize. Like they, they're not nearly the same situation as 08. But like, what about the risk parity funds? What about all the all the really biggest hedge funds that had gotten involved in the overnight lending market? Um, and the repo was blown out and the knock-on effects of that, right? And so here comes the Fed with you know, whatever it was, four trillion of of a essentially infinity, actually. The way to characterize it was infinity because they they said infinity, but it wasn't just that we'll do unlimited amounts of QE. They were also real acute. They started getting the term that I like to use is exotic. <laughs> the the Fed started getting exotic with that monetary policy stimulus, and they started doing things like like uh, announcing that they're going to buy credit ETFs, and we're going to do municipality stuff, and uh, you know, we, in such a short amount of time, you're talking about, talking about like 45 days that all this stuff happened, right? And you lose track of, you know, this, this term cross the Rubicon, right? We crossed the Rubicon so rapidly in terms of the things that were acceptable or deemed unacceptable previously that, that now we've already done them and nobody cares. Oh, and then we're, you know, then a ton of fiscal stuff. Andrew Yang, yo, Andrew Yang was running for the president of the United States on a universal basic income with an MMT underlier. And people, I mean, people thought this guy was crazy. And then you fast forward 90 days and now they're doing exactly what he's talking about. I mean, it's exactly what he's talking about. So I want to go back to uh, the idea of the dollar shortage first, right? Which is, uh, I think in the macroeconomic world and people who manage money professionally, they really have a good grasp of that. But just spend kind of a minute describing what that means in layman's terms for people who aren't in that seat. Uh, and then we can get into kind of some of the knock-on effects and, and why that's put us in the position that we're in today. Okay. Um simplistically and, and again i would say if you want to go deep go dig into all the macro voices guys simplistically dollar shortage the dollar is the world reserve currency um that means a lot of different things but it means that countries around the world um want to transact in dollars dollar-based transactions financial contracts liabilities financial instruments you want to do that in dollars um, because you feel good about the stability of what that's going to be. Um, that creates what is very broadly now been called the Euro dollar market, which is basically all of the dollar denominated liabilities and financial instruments that exist outside of the United States and thus outside of the direct purview of the Federal Reserve. And when this dollar shortage situation was which was, had been, again, going on for a year, close to a year. I mean, I, you know, I think the macro voices guys would probably tell you it's been going on for like five years. If you want to go all, all the way back to, you know, when, you know, I guess when, in, like, I guess foreign buyers of treasuries stopped becoming net, like net purchasers of treasuries, which I think was in 14. I know that was a big part of that kind of dollar, how that started. Um, but you fast forward to today and you have a big deleveraging event, a market crash like we had in March, and the whole world was already scrambling, you know, barely getting enough dollars 
to satisfy these various different, you know, contracts and, and financial instruments. And then there's this big race, $4, and you hit, it's just a vacuum. And the easiest way to think about how big that vacuum was, was that the Fed and the Treasury and the U.S. government announced north of $7 trillion of monetary and fiscal stimulus from, you know, over about a six-week period of time in kind of March, April. And uh, the Dixie, the dollar index, uh, which is the, the, the U.S. dollar uh, weighted against a basket of international currencies, the Dixie was unchanged over that period of time. So seven trillion of stimulus. Again, you only did, you did like two trillion in the financial crisis over a really big, you know, multi-year period of time. And we did seven trillion in, uh, you know, six weeks and nothing happened to the dollar. That's how short the world was dollars. And so, so the setup that that puts in place is, um, it, it now puts the United States government in a position to basically be shooting against dollar weakness with record levels of stimulus, un, unprecedented levels of stimulus. I, I don't know if you saw this statistic. Go, Goldman put this out in their research uh, about three weeks ago. The, hold on, let me, let me make sure I get this. The disposable personal income in the United States in 2020, Goldman predicts to be 0.5% uh, higher than in 2019. Higher. Basically flat. Let's call it flat. Disposable income flat year over year. How is that possible? That's possible because of the magnitude of the fiscal stimulus the United States is providing right now for people in, this, in these unprecedented times. Whether that's the, the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do is not what we're talking about right now. And it's almost like less interesting actually. So let's just identify what they're doing. And that's what they're doing. And um, as long as the dollar is hanging in around here, in my opinion, it's giving the Fed and the Treasury the green light to keep doing more and keep doing more. And that's basically what they're shooting against. So the way that I think about this, right, is you have a dollar that uh, is strong because it's, there's a shortage, right? It takes less dollars to buy more of a good or a service. And what you're basically saying is the Fed and the Treasury are sitting here saying, wait a second, I realize that we have a strong dollar. The way to drive recovery is going to be to uh, weaken the dollar over time. Right? If you talk to somebody like a Dan Taparillo, um, he would say you have to systematically weaken the dollar over time or you won't be able to drive the actual recovery that you need, right? And so what they're doing is they start out with, you know, I call it the water gun showing up in the combat zone, right? They literally, it was like a couple hundred billion, just didn't yeah. do anything. And then all of a sudden it was, uh, they dropped a monetary stimulus bomb on the battlefield, right? And they literally said, hey, we're gonna drop, you know, I think it was the $2 trillion, right? Which by the way, was a trillion dollar stimulus plan and over the span of like 72 hours doubled in size before it got approved, right? right? Yep. And that now all of a sudden they're realizing, wait a second, we still didn't put a dent in that. And so now you see, you know, the Democrats having approved, uh, I think it was in the House, 
$3 trillion, right? And, and yeah. it's just like, hey, how do we go bigger and bigger and bigger? And what they're really trying to do is systematically weaken the dollar by flooding the market with as much currency as possible. I think that then leads to this world of like, okay, so how are they doing that or what are they doing with it? You've already mentioned that uh, it started out with easy stuff, right? Let's go buy treasuries, you know, all that kind of stuff. Then they got it more exotic. It ultimately leads to the question of like, do we just get the UBI and MMT where you basically have the politicians directing where the money's going, not the Federal Reserve, et cetera? Yeah. As we sit here today, how do you think through, does that happen or not? And what's the ramifications if it does happen? Yeah. So the, the, kind of the only difference between QE and MMT is whether or not you're going through the, the machinations of pretending like you're going to pay it back. In, in QE, the treasury prints treasuries, sells it to the Fed. The Fed creates money to buy the treasuries. Um, and they use a dealer, uh, right? An intermediary bank, they use a dealer. Um, and in theory, the dealer is supposed to add some sort of, one, it legally, there's a, there's a, a, a sort of like legally, I think it's the Federal Reserve Act, I guess, um, or some offshoot of that. So legally, they got to go through that. And then also in theory, it's supposed to like <laughs> keep a market price on what that's going on, right? But it's like the dealer, that's not at all the way it's, I can just promise you that's just not at all the way it's working, right? Because the dealer knows that that uh, they're right here to buy it off of them, buy it from the treasury, sell it to the Fed, make a little spread, nice little business. Um, and so um, I, 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 I think that when you, when you look at, um, going through the, the, the machinations of pretending like we're still doing QE, um, but with the treasury right alongside the Fed. And then the only difference between QE and MMT is that, okay, we're not even gonna borrow the money anymore. The, um, we're just gonna create it literally out of thin air, not even pretend like we're doing this kind of paper IOU type of thing. And I don't, there's not really that much difference between that and what we're doing right now. There's just not that much difference in practicality. So we're kind of already there on MMT. And again, back to this cross the Rubicon kind of thing. Uh, a, a lot of this stuff, you know, it's tremendously hard to walk back. Once you get it out there on the monetary side, it's really hard to walk it back. Um, we've seen that, like we've seen this movie before. We've seen them try and walk back the monetary side. We saw the tightening and it ended up with Q418, dumpster fire for all risk assets globally. And you had uh, J-PAL, uh, December 17th, uh, 2018, talking about the Fed was on autopilot. And uh, the market really didn't like that autopilot, right? And uh, Trump didn't like that autopilot. And they did in January of 19, their massive dovish capitulation Again, reframing just how quickly we've come here, but that all these pieces were in place before we got here, right? Because we're just talking about January 19, when, when January 2019, when they did their dose capitulation. And so, so walking back the monetary thing is going to be really, really hard to do. Walking back the fiscal is going to be really, really hard to do. Um, and, and finding the right kind of give and take. Um, in terms of the, the, the pace that uh, 
you're trying to pull back this fiscal support when people can't find jobs is going to be very, very delicate. And they're definitely going to err on the side of doing more, not less. That's just, they are. So what, where does that put us with the pace of quantitative easing? Um, you know a lot about the pension liability problem. Um, you and I have talked about it some. USCO talks about it a lot. Um, that, again, the great accelerator, um, that was a problem before anybody ever said Corona. And the stock market move in March made that from a, a, you know, a very, very big problem to this kind of gaping hole, right? If the S&P 500 at 2000, the size of the pension line and what that does commensurate to other risk assets, right? So just use that as a proxy for all risk assets. What happens to the corporate debt? What happens to real estate? Blah, blah, blah. Doesn't work. What we, you know, pension liability problem, you know, it's been a problem for over a decade. Uh, used to feel like it was a long way away. That problem used to feel like a long way. Now, all of a sudden, it's not, it's not feeling like it's such a long way away. And so here comes quantitative easing. Uh, we were 12 years on into it in, in the United States. Uh, we did QE and then tried to do the QT. Didn't work. Started, started QE again before anybody ever said Corona. And then um, what we know, what we think we know about the way QE works is that it doesn't really cause inflation. It doesn't cause headline CPI inflation. It doesn't cause uh, the way that the Fed measures inflation for their 2% inflation target, right? Because you hit one month since the financial crisis, did you hit that, right? We know that's that. And it doesn't really cause that much economic growth. It causes a little bit. But that was the most tepid economic recovery uh, in, you know, in the history of the United States since World War II that we had. So it doesn't really work that well for that. But what it does do is it makes asset prices go up. And uh, the Fed is dealing with, it's, it, it is an organization full of people the same age as the people that are having the pension liability problem. It's there. It's, it's, those are the same people. And so the Fed is willing and able and incentivized to put the S&P 500 at 5,000 instead of 2,000, where that pension liability problem becomes a, a, a much smaller problem. And they have a track record of a willingness to do that. And so the base case that they're just going to keep going and keep going ad nauseum, got to worry about the Dixie to a certain extent, but you sure would like it weaker than it is right now. You know, you just did seven trillion and it didn't do anything to the Dixie. You can look at what's happening with um, inflation expectations right now, right? Five year forwards were at 2% right before anybody ever said Corona. You dip down to 80 bips in March, five year forward inflation. And now you're, you're hanging out at one and a half percent, one and a half percent inflation for five year forwards. And so, um, I'm also the opinion they don't want it to happen too quickly because I think if, um, I, <laughs> I, I, I've, you know, you talk to a lot of different people about, about what's going on here. I've talked to some really smart guys that you and I both know, uh, that from very early on said, um, this Corona thing is being tremendously overblown. 
and the magnitude of the monetary and fiscal response that's that is uh, happening in the face of this is just going to completely juice risk assets in a big big way and they're going to overshoot and the the motto amongst that group is uh new high by fourth of july they're talking about the s p 500 getting you know getting back to the highs of of uh, late feb uh by fourth of july which is would be a disconnect you're talking about 40 million unemployed s p 500 at all time highs that feels too soon to me and i I would have thought before Sunday night that they want and I actually think they got QE dialed in well enough. I actually think they've got QE plus the messaging dialed in well enough that um, that they could, I think they got a pretty decent handle on, on, on when to take the S&P 500 to all time highs. I thought they would want to lay off of that, honestly, until late September when people get ready to vote. So it's my base case assumption you're going to get new all-time highs in the S&P 500, and they're just going to use QE. You just—it's just a lever. You're just—it's just a lever. But after listening to Jay Powell on 60 Minutes Sunday night, that was not a man that wanted to wait very long uh, before getting a new all-time high in the S&P 500. And so you see these all these different pieces that are kind of starting to get put into place. So. When you get that disconnect, right? Because I agree with you that there's a massive disconnect right now. And, and, and I continue to say that the, uh, the stock market is not a representation of the economy. It's a representation of central bank actions at this point, right? And, and, and you're talking specifically about using that QE as that lever. Do you believe that they can stay disconnected? Or do you have to have some sort of um, matching, whether that means the stock price can go up and eventually has to fall back down to match economic reality, or you basically inflate it for so long at the dislocated level that you buy time for the economic data to recover and kind of get up to meet the expectation of those stock prices or asset prices. Like, like how, how do you solve the problem over the long run of not having a dislocation? I, I boil it down to this is the way I simplistically think about that. I say it is a totally reasonable base case to assume that that disconnect will be meaningfully wider than it's ever been ever before. And you just, and so you just kind of, I don't know, use that. I don't run an equity spun, right? So it's like, I, I don't, maybe I don't have to have it that dialed in, right? As opposed to maybe some other people. That's just how I think about it is that it's a great base case to just assume that those things are going to get way more disconnected than they ever have before. And they could stay disconnected for an extended period of time. And then again, when you, you know, as new information becomes available, you just keep watching Jay Powell, keep watching Steve Mnuchin. Okay. Steve Mnuchin's doing the debit card thing. Okay. He made a joke about debit cards with Trump. Okay. So we got that going on. And then you got Jay Powell on 60 minutes. Okay. So that's, Okay, we'll put that there. We'll put that there, right? <laughs> and that's you know you just I think you take it kind of level level by level from that perspective. So the one thing that uh, we definitely agree lockstep on is it's very hard to walk back all of the stimulus, right? And um, if you look at uh, let's take uh, the unemployment benefits, the the boost or the beefing up, right? The extra six hundred dollars a week, uh, we know for sure that there are many people who are making more money on unemployment than they were at their job. 
right? You could argue that uh, that's because the unemployment um, kind of boost was uh, inappropriate, or you could actually argue that that says more about people being not paid enough before all this happened, right? Kind of, kind of yeah. two sides of that coin. Democrats want to extend it past July, right? And they're talking about kind of end of the year and their latest three stimul- uh, $3 trillion uh, proposal. Republicans say, we're not extending that at all. Right. And, and now you get this political kind of battlefield over who's going to take it away. Mm-hmm. Right. And who can point who the finger at who because we're in an election year. Yeah. And so how much of that like political uh, really just posturing right or peacocking, if you will, uh, plays into the Federal Reserve decisions understanding that Jay Powell in the 60 Minutes interview said, oh, Congress has oversight over us, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> Which I thought was, you know, hysterical to, yeah, to hear him say. Yeah. But, but how do you think about the kind of the political layer over all of these decisions that are getting made in the economy? Yeah. Look, I think the first thing I'd say is I, I did not come on here to talk about the coronavirus. Like, I'm not going to talk about medicine. Don't ask me about like it's like I try and understand like everybody else but like it's been a little annoying when you get like the hedge fund guy to come on and try and talk epidemiology it's a little you've seen a lot of that lately um but I think what's been really disappointing to me has been how politicized the response has become and if you're paying attention you know that to be the case and uh, I just would have hoped we could have done a little bit better than that. Um, part of me, you know, if you pay attention to what I talk about, you know, I'm not a huge fan of government in general. <laughs> uh, and I think for a multi-decade period of time, we've had an issue where the, the best in this country most of them have no desire to go into politics. And a lot of people that do have a strong desire to go into politics aren't the guys that you want in run, like making the decisions on how to run the country. And there's definitely exceptions to that. I, I really want to point that out. But broadly speaking, a lot of times the people that are most attracted to the way the political process is in the United States right now are people that have these specific personality situations that um you know would make them less ideal than than some leaders that you could think off the top of your head man i wish that guy was you know helping us run the country right um and you're seeing that in a lot of different places you're seeing that in the state's responses with the federal government you're seeing that in um kind of a, a number of different layers but it seems like the fighting over the magnitude of the fiscal stimulus, honestly, I think is just posturing because you're talking about somewhere in between an unbelievable amount and a completely unbelievable amount. And if the, if the more fiscally conservative side of people, if, if they go in their direction and it looks like things aren't working out, we'll immediately do a lot more. And, and uh, everyone's very cued in on that. And again, the main thing that they're kind of, kind of shooting against 
dollar, you know, where the dollar is and inflation and you need inflation and we can't find it. We couldn't find it for the last 12 years. We haven't been able to find it. And coronavirus is a, a deeply deflationary event, but you had, again, the great accelerator. Um, you had a number of other really strong deflationary forces that were already, you'd been in it forever. Technology, right? Technology is very deflationary. It's been going on for a long time. Demographics, deflationary. Everybody's getting older, deflationary. It's the uh, yuppie, yuppie to nerd ratio, the ratio of the, the spenders to the savers. And when you get an, el an, an elderly population, uh, that's, a, that's a deflationary, fundamentally deflationary event. And we've got Japan as an example. You have num a bunch of different countries as an example. Um, one that I heard recently that I had not thought of before as a deflationary effect is um, unprofitable companies. So very, very large companies that uh, the market allows them to issue equity and debt continuously to fund businesses that don't, don't generate earnings or, or cash flow. We got a lot of those, right? We got a whole lot of those because uh, they have this kind of top line revenue growth or, or whatever. But you're, if you think about that, you're throwing capital into a hole that uh, isn't, you know, functionally producing sort of GDP type of growth, right? Deflationary. Um, you have, uh, and, and then here comes coronavirus, deeply deflationary. And uh, uh, oil, okay, oil, you know, does this incredible pullback, uh, also deeply deflationary. And so, so the United States is searching for where to find inflation. And so if you use that as the base case backdrop, they're gonna keep doing more in terms of monetary and fiscal stimulus. And then where else can we find inflation? We can find inflation in deglobalization. And that brings us to, this is what Shamath was talking about. And, uh, and other smart guys have been talking about this. Okay. So the Corona, this Corona event sort of pulled back the curtain on the fact that there's supply chain issues. Number of people have been talking about this already. There's a book written a couple of years ago, China RX or something like that. The, uh, the book about, uh, how vulnerable our prescription supply chain was in America, whatever the stat is, like 90% of all uh, uh, blood pressure medication or something. I don't know. I don't want to misquote it, but it's like real problem. You saw that come on. You just recently, last week, you saw the announcement of the uh, advanced manufacturing facility for um, prescription medication in Richmond, Virginia, I think is where that's being done. Um, a lot of people talking about bringing, you know, first it's, it's the kind of national security type of supply chain. So you bring back pharmaceuticals, you bring back PP&E, bring back microchips, right? Whatever that microchip company just announced last week, they're, they're now, they brought their manufacturing facility they're building back on, on, on shore. And then, um, and then you can just get creep in terms of other supply chain things, especially you can get creep in terms of, of other supply chain, bringing it back from, from China, back in the United States, when Larry Kudlow is talking about paying for the costs. That was a month ago. Like, oh, why don't we just peel off? And, and the thing is, is like before, 
crossing the Rubicon. Before all the numbers that we started doing this go around, to peel off $300 billion to pay for US manufacturers to bring manufacturing facilities from China back on the United States, where are we gonna find $300 billion? Where are we gonna find that? Well, now in, in the backdrop we have now, we ripped two trillion on a Thursday the other day because uh, Powell was worried about the unemployment numbers. Like, the, like the, these are incredible numbers that we're talking about now. So you can definitely find $300 billion to bring the supply chain back from China. Oh, and by the way, oh, we get to create a ton of jobs. Awesome. Oh, and we may be able to get that much, much desperately needed inflation that we can't find. And then the real kicker, the real kicker is that we get to fight communism. Pop. So the two things that are, are really interesting to me, the, the problem you're talking about in finding inflation, right? I think the concern is uh, there's a bucket. And when the bucket's empty, that's a deflationary environment, right? And we're trying to fill the bucket with water. And literally, we started with an eyedropper, right? It's just drop, 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 drop. And it doesn't take a genius or a rocket scientist to look and say, hey, that's going to take a long time to fill that bucket up. And we say, hey, you know what? Maybe we should pour a little more water a little faster. And then all of a sudden, something like coronavirus happens. You say, hey, we need the bucket full right now. Yeah. And they take literally a fire hose. But the fear is you have to not only fill the bucket, it's overflowing because you shot way too much water, right? Or you shot too many dollars into the system. Yeah. And so before we get to the fighting communism and, and uh, kind of the whole China showdown. Do you worry about overshooting in terms of the monetary stimulus and eventually getting that high level of inflation or, or even just over 2%? Forget high um, level. Um, I, don't, I don't worry about it. They're going to do it. So yeah. there's, no, there's no point in me worrying about what's going to happen because they're going to do it and then we're going to find out what happens. <laughs> I, I, I mean it. They're going to do it. They're doing it right now. So I agree with you. Uh, and I actually think that there's a separation. This is the other thing that I've been thinking about a lot recently. There's a separation between the inflation actually happening and just the fear of the inflation happening, right? So if you go back to 08, 09, gold goes down 30%, you know, summer of 08. And then they do start doing all this printing and people just, oh, oh my God, here comes inflation. They run into inflation hedge assets. Those things explode, right? Gold hits all time high in 2011, all that kind of stuff. Inflation never actually came, right. right? But it was the fear of it that drove the inflation hedge asset prices up. Yeah. Here, I think you get a, a kind of a repeat. There's the fear. You see people talking about it. People will definitely run into these assets, right? You even see Paul Tudor Jones talking about it, all this kind of stuff. But I actually think that they're going to do it this time, yeah. right? And, and to your point, does it become a, hey, we're targeting 2% and so we hit 25 or 3%? Or is this a, well, we way overshot and we get into scary levels of inflation that I think people are looking around the room saying, hey, is this thing going to survive? Like, where do you think we end up if we get the inflation? Yeah. So first you need to make sure we're talking about headline CPI inflation in US dollar terms. So as soon as you step outside of US dollar terms, you know, people use this, the term, the, the dollar wrecking ball. You heard people, right? Then describing what the dollar does to emerging economies, right? Dude, the euro's in a lot of trouble, man. I mean, the euro's, I don't know how much you were paying attention to the constitutional court in Germany and like, all. I mean, 
it's in real trouble. Uh, the Japanese yen, it's in real trouble. So now you talk, this goes back to these macro voices, cohort guys, where, you're, where they're talking about, oh, you're going to flee the dollar as the, as the, they're doing so much monetary and fiscal stimulus, you're going to flee the dollar as the world reserve currency into what? Into, into another currency? What, what currency are you going to go to? Everybody's in worse shape than we are. And so um, that's why they're all such gold bugs, right? Um, and I get that. And, you know, sometimes I, I always have this nagging feeling in my head about gold where when the entities most incentivize to keep the price of gold from drastically increasing relative to the currency that they control also hold 25% of the gold. In my head, I'm just like, you know, and it used to sound real tinfoil hat until a couple of those guys at JP Morgan went to jail on the precious metals desk. Right now, maybe it's, anyways, I don't want to get into that, but like, wait, before, before you go on, it's not so tinfoil hat when you know that they're willing to do certain things because right now, what you know, whichever side is right or wrong, I, I don't know all the details, but literally Venezuela is suing, I think it's Britain, because they yeah. won't give them their gold. Yeah, I saw that. Right? Basically, everyone is admitting, yes, this is Venezuela's gold, but we're not going to give it to you. And I get it that there's yeah. sanctions and kind of all that kind of stuff, but it's just you, you start to understand that there's things that uh, are happening that everyone is a rational actor and that sometimes leads to irrational things happening in a market if you don't understand why somebody's doing something yeah. right and, and and it feels like um like this is kind of brent uh johnson's theory at santiago right which is like we're in bad shape but relative to everybody else we're actually in great shape mm -hmm. and so sure. e even though we get kind of screwed if everyone else gets screwed more, then on a relative basis, we win, right? Which, which is pretty crazy. Yeah. You know, I have this weird, I've had this theory, again, as a guy that has done plenty of public railing on the Fed and the Treasury and all this kind of ridiculousness. And it's a big part of why I'm, I do what I do for a living. Um, I've had this like crazy thought that like, what if they were actually way smarter than I'm giving them credit for? And they were setting up all of these dollar denominated, you know, allowing all of these dollar denominated contracts and financial instruments to exist. And they see that keep growing and keep growing. In the back of their head, they go, if anything really bad ever happens, the whole world is going to have to rush to try and get dollars to satisfy these things. And it will give us the the buffer that we need to do un, you know incredible amounts of support for americans i don't know and be giving them a lot of credit which has not generally been my tendency but um but at the same time at the same time it's not out of the realm of possibility no right no, all. So, all right so as we see this all happening, let's talk about China. Yeah. There is um, a man who's the president of the United States who came in uh, and he had um, 
to put it lightly, uh, some very radical ideas compared to the establishment. This is everything from the deglobalization. This is uh, taking on uh, China directly in all the trade. Um, we'll, we'll call it talks if you want. <laughs> uh, befriending uh, dictators of uh, enemies of the United States um, and, and kind of playing up those relationships to uh, questioning very long-term relationships that the United States has both on the uh, diplomatic side, but also things like uh, the World, uh, World Health Organization, the Climate Accord, all these different things. Whenever there is something very disruptive like that, it's obviously going to be polarizing. So I don't want to get into kind of the political polarization that's well-documented. But the one thing that in some weird world we've backed into, many of those policies are now going to be adopted, but the impetus for them is not going to be our president wants to do this. It's going to be the virus forced us to do this, right? Yeah. So the deglobalization. Now everyone wants to take on China. Both sides of the aisle are looking over there and saying, whoa, hold on a second, right? And it may be for some different reasons, but ultimately we get this showdown. And so, you know, you know, uh, I spent a year in Iraq, a war that was started over WMDs that weren't there. Uh, And there's a lot of people, I think, that question that whole narrative of, you know, 18, 20 years later, why are we still at war in the Middle Mm -hmm. East? This is not a let's go invade, you know, the, the largest population country in the world. This is let's engage in an economic war that 50 plus percent of our country doesn't even understand, right? And so let's just start at a high level, how you see us positioned today, like that economic battlefield, if you will, like, like how is it positioned and then where do we go? Yeah. The lot to unpack on China. (laughs) Um, Trump ran for president on Make America Great Again. And like you said, again, back to this, the great accelerator, he was already making moves on China way before anybody ever said coronavirus. And um, you had the tariff wars, which were, you know, a year ago, right, that those cranked up and they came to this like pseudo deal that you knew that like the pseudo deal was really just Trump was like, that's enough for my first uh, term. And like, I'm definitely coming back at these guys in the second term. And a lot of this has been driven for Trump. A lot of this has been driven by Steve Bannon, right? That is the most hawkish guy that's closest to um, Trump. And Steve Bannon was out here the whole time with Kyle Bass and some of these other guys with a level of hawkishness that felt like it was kind of halfway to Alex Jones, right? And especially, it felt unpresidential in a way, because Obama was such a, you know, he really was a a globalist, and he wanted everybody to get along. He's a big get along guy, right? And um, that felt, you know, Obama was incredibly presidential, right? It's just, I mean, sometimes, politics aside, sometimes I see Trump get on TV, and you really miss Obama, right? Regardless of policy decisions, but just like, you know, Obama's a good guy, right? So, so with the, so with the globalization, um, 
Trump starts wanting to walk that back. Then here comes coronavirus. I'm of the opinion that, um, you know, it's it's becoming increasingly apparent that uh, the United States is is going to hold China accountable for um, coronavirus, and there's going to be a full uncovering of the facts. I have no doubt that the intelligence agencies, like, let's be like, how how much digging do you think the intelligence agencies have been doing over the last couple months? Like, let's be honest, let's just frame it like that. And not, we don't even have to answer the question. Just frame the question. They're going to answer for that. And then you're just starting to see the first things trickle in, right? Like what you said, World Health Organization. Okay. Um, uh, a, a number of other things. And then here comes the supply chain coming back. And the, the craziest thing, the experience for me personally that's been crazy is that, have you listened to Steve Bannon's podcast at all? So I haven't listened to Steve Bannon, but before you tell us about this podcast, the one thing I will say about Steve uh, and Kyle, so I did an episode with Kyle, uh, went down to, uh, to Texas and, and uh, had lunch and, and it was fantastic. Uh, incredibly intelligent guy, right? Obviously. Um, I left and I said, he really believes what he's saying, right? Mm -hmm. there, was no, there was no doubt. There was no kind of anything. I didn't know anything about Steve Bannon uh, before I went down there. We did not talk about Steve Bannon while I was there. Uh, afterwards, I saw on Real Vision that Kyle interviewed Steve Bannon. I watched that episode, yeah. And uh, basically, you could sum up my uh, understanding of Steve Bannon as headline you know, kind of coverage of him, right? Mm -hmm. So kind of he was the the right-wing crazy guy that the media really kind of took some shots at. And, and that was, you know, that's all I knew about him. Did, didn't know anything. After I listened to him and Kyle talk in that interview, I said, two things you can't argue with is Steve Bannon is incredibly intelligent. Smart. And Steve Bannon has a better pulse on the geopolitical landscape than pretty much almost anybody else I've heard talk about it. Yeah. Right. Yep. And he may be wrong. He may be right. He may be, you know, um, ill-advised in one area. He may be kind of, you know, waving his hand in other areas, whatever. But the dude is on top of a lot of stuff. Yep. And so uh, I have not listened to the podcast, but I just want to put that out there as uh, I was very surprised when I heard him talking uh, on those two fronts. Yeah. So, so the way the way that my China view has been formed really over the last probably like five weeks or so at the beginning of April. Um, I started listening to Steve Mann's podcast. The guy goes two hours a day, like six days a week. Played a lot of content, man. And again, it's like kind of halfway to Alex Jones, but I started noticing that he was talking about things that were, that the United States was going to do on the podcast. And then like 10 days later, it would come true. Like Trump would do it. And you, or you'd see some announcement, you'd see some move. And he had talked about, he, he called the pulling, pulling the funding from the World Health Organization, he called that a month before it happened. And he was talking about it factually. <laughs> and, uh, and so that was the first thing. And then I think in the second week of April, I saw Bill Maher um say that we need to call this the china virus and that there's not 
we shouldn't be changing the nomenclature, whatever, of how viruses are named just to try and be, uh, not step on anybody's toes in China. Okay, this is not Kyle Bass saying this. This is deeply left, right? The champion of Bill Maher, right? And um, then, I, then I started thinking about it and you, you start, this is what I meant at the beginning of this conversation where you see how all these things are interconnected Then you start thinking about the inflation thing. And then you start thinking about how the hell are we gonna get, what, what are we, we need jobs. We really, really need jobs. And uh, then you start thinking about uh, the potential for behind closed doors, politicians on a conservative side rapidly arriving at the view that, you know, the CCP, the, the Chinese Communist Party is, uh, is being treated as, uh, you know, really a bad actor. And we're treating them as a bad actor because there's now this body of evidence that shows that they're acting as a bad actor towards us. And it's not kinetic war, which was what we used to call war, like what you went to go do. And, and, but now they're talking about the economic war and the information war. And you're increasingly seeing this, this mounting body of evidence that that is what's going on. And um, one of the main ways that I realized that it was gonna get bipartisan support after you think about inflation, which you need, and the job creation, which you need, um, was one of the main reasons that, that progressives were having a hard time getting on the, this make America great anti is because it feels xenophobic, right? Building a wall along the Mexico-Texas border feels very xenophobic. And uh, progressives have definitely tried to paint um, some of the situations going on with China in a, in a xenophobic type of manner, and I understand that. But what you're able to do is, this is not about the Chinese people. We love the Chinese people. This is not about um, uh, Chinese Americans. We love Chinese Americans. This is about the Chinese Communist Party. We are fighting communism, and there is nothing more that Americans love than to fight communism. And when you can reframe it like that is we actually want to um, free the Chinese people from the communist rule. And then you start getting these USSR lookalikes. And that picture, like, what, what Democrats gonna, what, how do you stand up to that? Oh no, I'm super, super pro-China because I don't like jobs for Americans in the worst economic downturn in American history, when your unemployment rate is at unprecedented levels, oh no, I don't wanna bring jobs back to America. Nobody's gonna take that stance. And now it doesn't have to be about xenophobia. And again, I'm not, this is not my view. This is my observation of, of these pieces that have been laying in place. And the amount of, you know, it was, it was a little over a month ago that I think I kind of came to this realization and the amount of dominoes that have started falling in this broad direction has given me pretty strong confidence that the United States is about to put the screws to China uh, a bunch of different ways and to a degree uh, that I think just a really short amount of time ago would have thought is being impossible um, and that 
we're going to see how strong the Chinese economy really is. I think when the United States really tries to start to to punch back, I think, and in, 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 you know, against a lot of the different things that have been going on. So most of that punching back, uh, as we sit here today, looks economic, right? And that's everything from uh, weakening the economy uh, from the inside out, pulling back supply chains, pulling back jobs, right? All that kind of stuff. Uh, also externally weakening them. Uh, that's through the tariffs and all that kind of stuff. Do we go from an economic war to a physical war? Like, do, do, does it creep out into um, something that looks different than what I think the path that you and I see right now? Like, can you yeah. see that happening? So I just take the view of experts. Um, some of the experts that I've, I've read and listened to on this topic say that China does not have interest in a physical war. The, the really sad part is that if you just looked at history, History would tell you that with almost no exception, you go to physical war when things like this come to a head, um, you know, with, with very little exception. I think there, there is some hope that in 2020, we can avoid that, um, but it's, it's scary. Um, but, I, but I have, again, heard from experts that, that, that you know, make a career out of following China, um, that China does not want that. Um, and that they think that over, again, they have a tendency to think on, you know, they think much, much longer term than I think U.S. politics and things like that are able to think on. And they're thinking over decade, over decade, over decade of experience, uh, or, 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 or uh, uh, just decades of, of going back and forth with economic and, and information warfare that eventually, uh, you know, the U.S. just slides into a sort of more subsidiary position. Um, I just get the sense that over the next handful of years, the U.S. is going to punch back there. Yeah. yeah. It was really interesting. Uh, Peter Zahan, uh, kind of a, a yes. global strategist. Did you have him on? I did. Oh, man, I hadn't listened to that. Oh, he's so good. And, and he basically, his whole theory, for those that don't know, is uh, he looks at demographics and he tries to understand how the world will uh, kind of evolve over time based on that demographic uh, information. And uh, he's of the belief that within the next 10 years, there will not be a unified China, right? He, right. he, he believes that basically China is on the precipice of uh, at best breaking up, at worst uh, blowing up. Right yeah. is kind of a, I think would be a fair way to categorize it, and so how does this affect um, the rest of the world? Right, you got the two superpowers locked horns in kind of the middle of the arena, and they're going to go at it. Right, and and uh, it's kind of like a prize fight in that they're both going to land punches to some degree. Uh, the question is going to be who knocks who out at the end. Right. Who, is the rest of the world just sitting in the stands watching or are they doing things um, that to help either side uh, or manipulate the situation in any way? Um, I mean, it feels like there's going to be major collateral damage from this, right? We know that the EU is, the, the EU economy is basically mostly Germany <laughs> and Germany has hitched its, horse to the China cart 
and uh, they've been able to sort of, you know, import growth from China that is in a lot of ways buoyed the entire European Union. Um, so I think there's potential for major collateral damage in the European Union is, you know, if, if you know, these two sides start going against each other. Um, I, I don't have a base case there. It's more, you know, if all these different things, these really big things we've been talking about. I really, if you can tell, I just try and pick a general direction as a base case. And then you just wait in for new information and you see if you're confirmed or you're denied. And what it looks like right now is like, okay, it looks like the United States is really going to try and put the screws to China. And there's a good chance that China's going to do something to try and put the screws back to them. And we're going to go in that direction. And then you just watch as, you know, every time a new, you know, every time Chinese stocks get delisted from the NASDAQ, right? Like you're seeing, dude, Bannon, a month ago, he was talking about, th- at least three weeks ago, Bannon on his podcast was telling you this was going to happen. That's what has made listening to his podcast like such a weird, like just a, a weird experience because well, of how accurately he's called a lot of this stuff. And it's not by coincidence, right? It's not like the guy's no. got a magic ball. Yeah. It's one of these things, if you, if you want to predict the future, you know, go build it, right? Yeah. And, and that's 100%. what he's doing is he's got the ear of the president and he's basically saying this stuff because that's what he believes. And then he goes and he tells the president, Hey, you should do this. Right. And some percentage of those ideas, you know, get through the filter and and, uh, will end up getting implemented. I I guess the other part of uh, this kind of superpower, you know, showdown is in a world where China wins that, right. And, And it happens over, you know, a decade, let's call it. Does the U.S. dollar lose the global reserve currency status? Like, like, is it is it a battle where uh, that is what is at stake? Is the global reserve's currency status? It's a great question. Um, you could put yourself in the shoes of the leaders of the Chinese Communist Party, and they're trying to play fifty-year, hundred-year ball, and you could say man, this U.S. dollars of world reserve currency is a huge pain in our ass. And it is a tremendous pain in China's ass. And if you saw in April when the Fed extended those FX swap lines to all the major central banks in the world, you know who didn't get a swap line? PBOC did not get a U.S. dollar FX swap line. And then just to start, we've already talked about crypto so far. We're going to get to Bitcoin. But just to circle back to crypto, uh, here comes the US, uh, uh, USDT prints, the tether prints. All the US, the majority of the tether printing has been a backdoor FX swap line into China and other parts of Asia that desperately, desperately need dollars and they'll take them any way they can get it. They love tether, they've been loving tether for non crypto use cases. I first started hearing about that in. April of last year, all remittance payments, cross-border payments, supply chain logistics payments, capital flight, all these different use cases. Um, and, and, and so as, as we kind of start to squeeze China and we figure out the different ways that we can put, you know, the US puts the screws to them. But in the meantime, you know, incredible amounts of, of, of money supply increase. Now, look, you, you listen to some of the macro voices, cohort guys, like I think Luke Grauman would say we got like 50 trillion of room. 
I think that, I mean, I've heard him throw, you know, I think these guys throw out these insane numbers uh, in terms of the amount of room that you have. Uh, I don't have, those guys are way more of an expert on that than I do. But I think the thing, the important thing to realize is that those chickens are going to eventually come home to roost for the U.S. dollar. And they're not going to be baby boomers problems. They're going to be our problems. There's going to be, that's going to be your problem. That's going to be my, that's my problem. That's, that's not my, I love my mom. I love my parents. It's not going to be my parents' problem. It's not Donald Trump's problem. It's not, it's not Joe Biden's problem. It's not Jay Powell's problem. It's not, it's, it's not any of their problems. It's, that's going to be our problem to deal with. And so you're, you're doing damage to uh, the strength of the U.S. dollar to um, uh, kick the can further down the road. And when people talk about uh, boomer sociopathy, that's exactly what they mean in terms of you're putting them, you're putting it future generations. You can just look at, there's a history to all this shit, dude. There's hundreds and hundreds of years of, of fiat currency history, central banking history. There's history to all this. Without exception, when you do this, it, le- it ends very poorly. There is no exception to that. But it doesn't happen right now. We got room to give. And by the time it does come to a head, it's not going to be their problem. It's going to be our problem. So how are we going to fix, like, what's our generation going to do to fix that problem? Okay, here comes a non-sovereign form of money. Really, it's real radical. Technology hadn't been around very long to do it. Boomers definitely don't like it. I think it doesn't make any sense at all. Um, but when you look at how we got here, and the way that we got here with the monetary policy situation, it's actually a lot like how we got to the global financial crisis on the micro level of subprime. How did subprime happen? Most people, everybody's seen the big short. A lot of people read the book, right? If you read the book, then you know that a key factor in how the subprime mortgage crisis happened was because of a lack of, there was nobody checking anybody else, right? And there was a lack of uh, checks and balances and the incentive structure was all wrong, right? Because everybody got to punt the risk and you had the guy making the originations that got the bonus and then the bank didn't have to hold it, they could punt it. And then the bank that got it punted to them, they collateralized it and they sold it to somebody else. And there's Germany over there, they would always buy everything. And like, that's, there was not a system of accountability. Well, the same thing has happened over a multi-decade period with what we've done with, with, uh, with the monetary policy of the US dollar. And that's part of this you know, bigger thing that I talk about a lot called the trust revolution. And as we fast forward through the rest of this decade, and I think we've touched on a number of things that uh, we're going to see happen in the next decade, real big, important, massive things that are going to happen. Who knows what the outcome is going to be. But as you move through the 2020s and you know, we'd probably get to 2030 is the euro around. I don't know, probably not, honestly. You know, huge changes that will have occurred. And does the world start looking at the damage that's been done to the US dollar? And the fact that historically, 
inevitably, inevitably, there's a transition from one world reserve currency to the next. The last time we had one of those was uh, the British pound after World War One. We got to World War One. Pound was wrecked. People used the dollar and the British pound together in between World War One and World War Two. Got on the backside of World War Two. British pound was so wrecked. We did Bretton Woods. Here comes the U.S. dollar. I've been there ever since. There's a timeline to all of these. What's the chances that as the U.S. dollar inevitably becomes so damaged that people are really looking for where else to go? That our generation, not not our parents' generation, our generation decides. I think we should go with non-sovereign. I think we should go with something that's governed by open source computer software. I mean, look, it, I'll take it even a step further. Not only is it our generation, at what point do other countries just say, look, I'm not playing this game, right? I see the economic battle between the U.S. and China. I see all of this manipulation going on. I see the printing. I just want something that I know what's going on, right? Yeah. And, and I think that that uh, perspective applies to countries, but to your point, also to an entire generation of people who literally right now, uh, the meme, right, which as we're learning is the memes are the message. The meme is don't fight the Fed, but money printer go burr, right? And, and, and they I, I was thinking about this the other day, actually, money printer doesn't go burr. It actually goes beep, poop. I don't know. I thought about that the other day. Yeah. I mean, but, but, but here's the thing, right? Is when you think about what they are doing, there's never been a generation that has had the access to information and the access to the people that we have today. Mm -hmm. So part of what I always uh, joke about is a magic show only works if you don't know how the magic is done. Mm. But as soon as somebody tells you how the magic trick actually is carried out, it's no longer magic, yeah. right? And what we're seeing is they're revealing the magic trick. They're saying, we, we literally go into an account and we edit the number, right? And people, hold on a second. Well, why do I pay you taxes, yeah. right? Why do you need my tax money as revenue if you can just edit your bank account? That doesn't make any sense, right? And you start, again, that's a small subset of people who start to think that way. Then they see on you know, the first 60 minutes uh, of the crisis where literally they're saying, well, we have infinite money. Right, we we just we we can print as much yeah. as we need. Yeah. Okay. There's a second. Cash, you talking about Kashkari? Yes. You know that one? Yeah, that was amazing. Yeah. Then you get Jay Powell, right? And and you keep going through it, and what you realize is it goes from a very small subset of the internet, right? This crypto community, but there's literally videos floating around. There's memes. I've I've tweeted three or four of them where people are taking Jay Powell and they're putting him on videos of rappers throwing money around. Yeah. Right. And, and it's a joke at first, but the reason why it's a funny joke is because there's truth in every joke. Yeah. And, and what you start to see is the narrative changes. And of course there's some cutoff. I don't know what the age cutoff is, but some group of people above a certain age are like you young kids are idiots. Right. You know, um, uh, who's a Dave Collin the other day said, uh, young people, the number one rule is don't complain about your government. That's for old people to do. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. But, but the point being, at some point, that meme is just accepted fact. And when that happens, trust ends up eroding away and people start looking around the room and they say, well, where's the most transparent thing, Yeah. right? And I think that that's what we're seeing happen. The question is, can you get enough people to kind of tip over and seek that out? 
to actually get the, the, the tipping point to actually occur, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I think that just in the last 90 days, again, the great accelerator, just in the last 90 days, I think you've had a, an entirely new swath of, you know, kind of almost category of, um, of investors that were not considering Bitcoin that look at the magnitude of what we just did and, and, are, and are really starting to consider it at the first time. I mean, I really know that to be the case, right? And there's a few that obviously, you know, Paul Tudor Jones is, you know, probably, you know, the one that's being talked about the most and that's great. And, um, uh, you know, is an investor letter, you know, what he wrote was, you know, really, really good or, I highly doubt he wrote it, but the guy who got to write it, you know, they spent a lot of time on it. Like a third of the whole thing was dedicated to it. Um, and Rintech, Renaissance Technologies, trading it. Um, again, very different, very different type of investor. Um, and I, I've been having some fun sort of like daydreaming sessions, imagining, trying to imagine how Renaissance Technologies is investing in Bitcoin. And like, what are they, because they're not a market making firm. They're, they're a firm that like tries to take every single financial instrument on the planet this is incredibly simplistic and nobody really knows how they do it. But like they, again, most successful hedge fund of all time by a long shot. And they like take thousands of financial instruments or hundreds, probably thousands. And each one is made up of like a tiny little slice of a specific type of risk. And each instrument is like a combination of different tiny little dashes of like a thousand different types of risk. And then there's a relationship across all those different types of risk across all those different financial instruments. And then you like try and find ones that are, you know, cheap or expensive relative to some other ones. And you go long those, the cheap ones, you go short, the expensive ones. And it's that kind of thing. Again, I could be completely wrong, but I mean, broadly speaking there, you know, it's something, maybe something like that. So it's been fun to imagine like how do they how do they code up Bitcoin? Like when is like when is Bitcoin? I mean they didn't they didn't get into it and make a change to their fund structure or their regulatory documents to short the thing into a hole hole in the ground. They didn't. It was more likely they did something like, oh, Bitcoin's cheap relative to the Fed, the size of the Fed's balance sheet. It's, you know, that's a very simplistic relationship. And then you just think about that and then you and then insert like another thousand different financial instruments with different sort of types of risk. Right. And it's just like fun, it's been fun to think about. You know. What do they think the relationship of BTC is to gold or to 10 years or to the VIX or to Fang stocks or to, you know, a lot of different things like that. But. You are seeing, you know, OK, another example. Andreessen Horowitz, right, oversubscribed on a $515 million, uh, million dollar fund. Um, you're seeing a lot of different, I, I'm sure you've noticed it anecdotally, um, how many people just hit you up out of the blue, right? You're a little different. You're like a major figure. But in crypto, for me, I'm like, for all my friends and family and things like that, I'm just the guy that does a lot of Bitcoin more than anybody else that they know. And so, you know, when I get, you know, a dozen text messages in the third week of March about buying Bitcoin, most of them already bought, 
And then, you know, we, we just recently uh, opened up our fund to take outside investment again, and the amount of interest that there's been in it. And you see a lot of these different things where we've covered so much ground from a monetary and fiscal policy perspective. You know, again, I bang this drum all the time. Bitcoin is a non-sovereign, hard cap supply, global, immutable, decentralized digital store of value. And it's an insurance policy against monetary and fiscal policy irresponsibility from central banks and governments globally. Been saying that since the beginning of last year, way before any of this stuff happened. Then you do seven trillion of monetary and fiscal stimulus in less than 90 days, and people just start thinking about that a lot more. Yeah. Well, and I think part of it is um, before it was uh, a religious um, kind of irrational type investment, right? Very much, very similar to like a venture capital investment. So it's either going to be worth you know, boatloads more than it is now, or it's going to be worth zero. And I think a lot of people looked at it that way. Uh, now what people say is, well, hold on a second, forget what asset it is. I know what's happening on the economic side because they're talking about it on television every day, right? And the numbers are just mind boggling. What can I do, right? And there's really only three things you could do. I guess four things you could do, right? In the short term, you can hold dollars, you can hold gold, you can hold land, you can hold Bitcoin. Right. And maybe there's some other, you know, kind of crazy exotic things, whatever. But for the most part, those are four easy to understand examples. In the medium term, you probably can still hold dollars. You can hold gold, land, and, and Bitcoin. In the long term, you can't really hold dollars. Yeah. Right. Because it's going to end up getting devalued away. So now you're back to gold, real estate, and Bitcoin. And yes, I'm sure that there will be the inflation of stock prices along the way but you still have that dislocation between the actual economic underlying data and the, and the asset price. And yeah. so, you know, Paul Tudor Jones wrote it, uh, I, I thought really well, where he said, look, the fastest horse wins, right? And, and it's, I think all of these are gonna go up, but this one specifically. And it reminded me, uh, I, I, I gotta go back and get it. I wrote, um, this is in March, I wrote a piece uh, ranking all of the assets over the next two years. And I gave stocks like an eight out of 10, right? I gave uh, oil like a, I think it was like a five out of 10. And I said, gold is going to go over 2000. I think it's going to end up somewhere between 2000, 2500 bucks, but it's a two out of 10. Because that's really not that big of a move compared to something like a Bitcoin where the volatility is going to work in its favor, right? You're going to get this massive increase in, in price. And what shocked me was how many like traditional Wall Street folks reached out and they said, wait a minute, you're telling me that the same drivers of, you know, gold or, or real estate is going to be the driver of Bitcoin. Like explain that to me more. Yeah. Because they were already convinced that those other two assets were going to do well because of all the monetary uh, stimulus stuff. Right. Yeah. And so I think that's where you're going to see the kind of uh, confidence build is that connection between what drives this price yeah. compared to that macro environment. That, another way to back into high conviction around a Bitcoin long is going back to the incentive structure for the Fed to put the S&P 500 at 5,000. Again, the way I always frame it, willing, able, incentivized with a track record of printing. Look at that pension liability problem. We need this thing at 5,000. And you think about that as the backdrop there's no way Bitcoin doesn't work. If, if that call is correct, there's a, you, it's highly unlikely that Bitcoin doesn't work in a really, really big way. And obviously from a percent return perspective, 
works massively better. You know, you, that's a double. So that's a double in the S and P 500 from here, right? Little, a little less than a double. Well, if that if that's the backdrop, then I'll be, I mean, BTC is going to be fifty thousand plus. It just is. That's it is. And maybe there's a chance that Satoshi moves his coins. Maybe there's a chance that somebody does something to the blockchain. Somebody steals all the coin. Some catastrophic, idiosyncratic type of risk. And you got to manage around those. And that's why there's active management. But like that backdrop, it's really, really unlikely that Bitcoin doesn't work in a big way there. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think what you're talking specifically is about is structurally Bitcoin couldn't be better set up for what we're seeing, right? Yeah. And, and and it's just interest rates drop, you get printing of money, you've got a uh, a store value asset that is based on an artificially capped supply, and you just had the having, right? Like that's the part that that's so crazy to me is a lot of the analysis I see right now talks about Bitcoin in the macro environment, and they basically like. As soon as they just pretend like the having isn't even here, right? Yeah. It's like that's not even part of the analysis. When you add in that part, I continue to tell people it's like gold in 2009 when everyone should have been buying gold before it went up almost 200%. Imagine if 50% of the gold miners just shut off, mm -hmm. right? And they just said, hey, look, half the, half the gold supply that you thought was coming online is not coming online now. Yeah. The, the other thing that's been, I think, pretty specifically around Bitcoin that's been incredible to watch over the last couple of months is you know, people talk about anti-fragility a lot, throw that around a lot, but the juxtaposition of Bitcoin's anti-fragility relative to how obviously fragile traditional financial markets have become and so, so incredibly distorted. And specifically you think about Black Thursday, and at peak to trough, Bitcoin is down 50% in 24 hours. Really hate to see that for your, if you're gunning for the world reserve currency, being down 50 in 24 hours, big problem, right? I get that. But the bounce, the magnitude of the bounce and how spot driven it's been. And also specifically around anti-fragility, this is, this is a setup around Black Thursday. It was leverage driven. People had gotten real bulled up on the having. People were super, super long on, on the perpetual swaps across all the platforms. Tether borrow rates were super high. Contango was blown out. I did a, a little podcast uh, with Nathaniel Whittemore with it, uh, on, on February 14th. At the end of it, he asked me, What do you think the biggest risk is right now? And in in, in, what are you most worried about? I said how levered this market is right now. It's very levered long. That was a month before. And um, that was an untenable situation. And last time Bitcoin encountered a big untenable situation was the BCH, BSV fork hash rate war thing in November 2018. And Bitcoin did it down 50 then too. Took a couple of weeks, but it did it down 50. What happened after that was Bitmain and Jihan Wu and Craig Wright and Calvin Air and all the clown shows, their role 
in this ecosystem was diminished to the point that it got a lot, lot harder for them to do something bad to Bitcoin. And don't get me wrong, down 50, right? But it bounced all the way back and this and the other. Leverage situation, very untenable. You roll through to Black Thursday, down 50 in 24 hours. But you shook, it, th that was a, a nuclear bomb event in terms of the market structure for Bitcoin. I can just tell you that without getting into detail. It was just like, and the entire market structure changed. And that entire buying back, I mean, the vast majority of the bounce after Black Thursday was very much a spot driven. Um, it was just not derivatives led. It was not leverage led. And it was mostly U.S. spot and U.S. retail and the herd. And we know a little bit more about what the herd did now with a little bit of hindsight, right? Herd's been buying. Like you think Paul Tudor Jones doesn't have any friends? Like, and and you get to where we are today, and um, you now have us at wherever we're at right now, nine k, and uh, but the, the the foundation underneath where we are at the price level is much much more sound. And don't get me wrong, Asia is you know still the eight hundred pound gorilla in the room. Um, but the bounce from, from a bunch of different angles looks to us to have been US led. And that's real healthy. And I think it's directly in response to both retail investors, high net worth, the guy buying $200 on Coinbase, every, from him to Paul Tudor Jones, everybody's looking at what's going on with monetary and fiscal policies and they're going, probably worth taking a little flyer on this. This may be the best hedge on the face of the planet for this thing and the market cap's the size of Costco. So I should, you know, might be worth doing. So. The, the part that's so funny to me is on that 50% drop, the coins that were sold had all moved in the last like year for the most part, yeah. right? Overgeneralization. But basically if you had held for, you know, more than a year at that point, they weren't selling. Yeah. And you just saw the transfer from the weak hands to the strong hands. And the part that I continue to go back to is we could sit here and we could talk about all the technical aspects of Bitcoin. We could talk about all the macro, et cetera. All that stuff is important. But at the end of the day, money is a belief system. And there is no group of people that believes in a currency more than Bitcoiners believe in Bitcoin. Mm. That just absolute hold forever lock in. It's the greatest defensive moat in the world, yeah. right? Because nobody can do anything to shake them, right? Whereas the U.S. dollar, a lot of people who believe, but literally, by the way, when people are writing about inflation, they're writing, I'm questioning what's going to happen in the future, right? There, yeah. There's a shaking of confidence. And it's not, I think it's going to fail tomorrow. It's not, I think it's going to fail in five years, but it's this all of a sudden doesn't look as strong as it did yesterday, right? And I actually think that when Bitcoin drops, what you see is the exact opposite of what you see in other markets. You see those convicted people lean in more yeah. rather than run. Mm. And to me, I just go back to like, that's really hard to quantify. It's really hard to explain to somebody until they see it. But when you look at that, that to me is the most uh, defendable thing for all of Bitcoin. And it's the most bullish signal, right? Yeah. In all of this. Yeah. I mean, just, I don't know, try and sum it all up. Like those really big pieces that are, surrounding this thing and then you just have this this non-sovereign form of money sitting right in the middle of it and i mean we didn't even get into 
you know, Bitcoin in the middle of the China versus the United States thing. I mean, that's its own and, and trying to bring mining capacity back into the United States. And that is a trend and, you know, stranded gas and, and, and renewables out in West Texas. And, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, uh, the digital remembi, right. The DCEP and that rolling out. And, um, it looks like the United States is may go let Libra kind of compete against the DCEP. I, I also think that there's there's probably a view internally in the government that nobody's going to use the DCEP because the United States is about to put the screws to China, and and people just don't want aren't going to want to deal with the Remembi and. Um, then maybe in time you can get Libra to go compete on the continent of Africa. Cause that's the big, the big, I think, DCEP on the continent of Africa, China, one belt, one road, you know, while the United States, States spent $10 trillion in the sand dunes in the Middle East, they spent $10 trillion on infrastructure in Africa. And uh, if you ask any kind of global macroeconomist where the next 50 years of GDP per capita growth in the world is gonna come from, it's gonna come from the continent of Africa. It is in the best interest of sort of the United States national security for I think the DCEP to not gain mass adoption on the continent of Africa. And they probably recognize that it's, it's, uh, it's probably a good idea to let Libra go compete on that and, uh, you know, if you're on the continent of, you know, I don't want to speak for, I, I've never been to Africa, actually, so I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth, but I would guess that if you could choose between a Venmo that was loaded up with dollars and a Venmo that was loaded up with DC, you know, with Remembi, like, you know, all else being equal, you'd probably pick the dollar. So uh, that's going to be, you know, a big factor of it, I think, unfolding over the coming years. You ready for a wild prediction that I think has a lot of uh, possibility of happening? Libra is R and D for the digital dollar. Yep. They're gonna let they're gonna let Libra play it out, fight them a little bit, let them know you can't do whatever you want, keep doing it, come give us an update, do all this kind of stuff. At the eleventh hour, all of a sudden, digital dollar is gonna come out of nowhere, mm. and. My guess is uh, right now it's intellectually interesting to them, right? We saw it in one of the stimulus package proposals. Let's give a digital dollar to people to deliver the, the stimulus, whatever. It got taken out pretty quickly, but oh yeah, yeah, it's too, it's too sexy of an idea. They don't understand how it works. They don't understand how to do it. They have no clue the risks associated with it or anything. But to say I helped put forward the digital dollar means you get reelected. Right. And so, so intellectually interesting from a, from a politician standpoint, technologically, we need it right for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, and then from a, a global power standpoint, what you're talking about, it's accessibility. Right. And I keep going back to look, if you're in Venezuela right now, right. Or Zimbabwe or wherever your currency has failed you, you want dollars, right. You want the stability. You want the full faith and credit of the United States government behind you. And you know, all this kind of stuff, you can't get the dollar. And so if all of a sudden there's a digital currency that has a different monetary policy and happens to be China's, but all you need is an internet connection, 
Now all of a sudden China's currency is more accessible to you than the US dollar is. And so you're just naturally by path of uh, least resistance, you end up with the, the Chinese currency or there's Bitcoin. And so that to me is interesting, but I don't believe that the US will let that happen. I think that they'll go ahead and digitize the dollar and make it an even playing field. But ultimately where the competition comes down to, it's not on the technology front because now everything's digital. It's at the monetary policy level. And I, and I think that the one thing that's gonna end up happening is the internet is gonna break the Fed because the Fed is dependent on at least 50% of Americans not understanding how money works. Yeah. Yeah, and, it, point. and if the internet, you know, basically teaches you, gives you access to the information, you say, hey, this is, this is a game that's rigged, right? It's, it's rigged if I don't know the rules. So let me get out of this thing. Um, and whether that's into stocks, other assets, Bitcoin, whatever, I, I just think that that education will be one of the, the biggest inflection points out of all of this. Yeah. Uh, like we're headed there. Uh, before I let you go, two questions. One, I don't think you'll answer, but I'll try. Uh, any price predictions that people want to know from you? Any timeline, any price you choose. I nailed that. The last time we did this, I uh, nailed that one to the wall, actually. That's why they want you to do it again. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I, I'd prefer not to, I guess. Right. I think, you know, if I got even money that a year from now, even money bet a year from now, we've hit new all-time highs. I mean, I would take e even money, yes. All right. That's pretty yeah, conservative but, compared to most people, uh, what they think is going to happen. Yeah, I think uh, – I get the sense that maybe the herd's not going to let this thing run away from them. You may, you may get into a period of, we may be in, in a lot of accumulation over that period of time, over the next year. And like how much you can disguise that accumulation, you know, probably depends. And, um, you know, there's still the potential for a lot of macro stress, but, yeah, that's a little, that's maybe a little conservative, but you know, like if you told me new all-time highs by September 30th, even money, I'd take the under. All right. Yeah. What is the one signal or data point that you wake up every day and look at that people mm. wouldn't expect you to look at? It? It's probably, uh, without getting into too much specifics, it's the, because we've built a lot of models that cover a lot of bases. So the few things I look like, and, and to be honest with you, because we've done a lot of this, this modeling work, it's actually freed me up to uh, spend a lot more time thinking about and researching the bigger picture. It's funny that, we, like I said, we talked about this big picture stuff the whole time, but like we run this fund on a bunch of models that don't have anything to do with big picture. Um, so I think the things that I still look at on a discretionary basis are things that we have not nailed down the model for yet. And I'd say without getting into specifics broadly, it's like putting together, piecing together a picture of 
how much leverage is in the kind of Bitcoin price discovery process at any given moment and, you know, kind of broadly how much, uh, you know, if longs or shorts or offsides relative to that kind of price discovery action that's happening right now, that's probably what I still look at pretty regularly, kind of manually. Um, yeah. If people want to, uh, to find you on the internet, where, uh, where you want to send them? Uh, Twitter's good. Travis underscore Kling, K-L-I-N-G. And uh, the fun website's ikigai.fund, I-K-I-G-A-I.fund. Don't I, get, I thought I'd get a question for you. Sure. Do I still get to do that? How's the – I don't oh, – what, what, what are you, like a, like a podcast guest expert now? You're just waiting <laughs> for the end? <laughs> well, I thought that was part of the deal. I get to ask you a question. Yeah, it um, is. For a second-time guest, it's like you already got one question. Why, do I, why should I give you two? But go ahead. I wanted to know, maybe Yusko's been having a lot more of these conversations. Um, I just haven't had a chance. I've talked to him recently, but I didn't have a chance to ask him this question. I, the conversations with the more institutional side of folks, just over the last two months, how would you characterize the state of that? You know, kind of broadly, has it changed? Has the frequency picked up? Has the tone changed at all? Is it about the same? Were people already interested in January and they're the same amount of interest? Like, how would you characterize that? So there's definitely, uh, I'll just say like fund, fundraising uh, mechanism changes. You know, if, if people uh, had to focus on their own portfolio, not investing in new funds at the moment, give us a couple of weeks, like all that, take that aside. Uh, I think there's a lot of people who understand what's going on. They do this for, you know, a living. They manage a lot of money. And uh, they're asking the same questions that the Paul Tudor Jones are asking, right? How do I hedge this thing? Um, if it, what happen, if what I believe is going to happen happens, what assets are going to perform best? Uh, and it's kind of this feeling of like, all right, we're in the warmups for showtime. Like we're about to play the NBA championship game. You know, it's, it's game seven. Uh, we're in warmups. So we got a whole game ahead of us to play, but like, the, the four quarters get played over the next 18 months, yeah. right? Or the next 24 months. And, uh, you know, it's like any game, right? Like, hey, first quarter, yeah, there might be some back and forth, whatever. But, like, it's pretty chill compared to the fourth quarter with two minutes left. Yeah. <laughs> right? And, and, and so I think that um, that type of analogy of, like, they feel like, hey, we're getting warmed up. You know, there's some electricity in the stadium, right? People are excited. They know it's going to be a big game. The question is just which team wins. And, yeah. uh, and so I think, you know, that's both the challenge and the opportunity of, uh, you know, I, I think I've told you this before, but I don't think I've ever said on a podcast, uh, I'm always shocked at how many people I talk to in the institutional world that close the door and say, I own Bitcoin. I say, yeah. what? Like, and, and I'm not talking like, you know, family office, like you expect it there. I'm talking about like the CIO of public pensions that yeah. are managing like the fireman's pension fund, Right. And they're like, yeah, I own Bitcoin. I've owned it for you know, three years. Like I'm a believer, right? I know all you guys. And you're sitting there and you're like, why? And you're like, <laughs> I, I believe the same thing that you believe, right? And it's always funny because then you look at their portfolio and you say, why isn't it in the fund? Why have yeah. you not made certain moves? And they go, well, the thing is that people think I make the decisions around here, right? Mm. I, I make the suggestions, but ultimately, you know, I got bosses, right? In terms of the yep. boards and things like that. Uh, and, and so I think that, that is the been the biggest uh, challenge 
that is becoming an easier conversation for a CIO to have with the board because Renaissance technology, Paul Tudor Jones, JP Morgan Chase is now banking Coinbase and Gemini, yep. right? Yep. You get all these little data points and each one on its own doesn't really matter, but the, the totality of them uh, gives you um, some mitigation of career risk is how I would put it. Yep. And I think that that is probably one of the more important developments over the last you know, six months or so. What, one last thing I'll say on that note, I feel like in, in the last couple months, because of what's going on with monetary and fiscal stimulus, I've heard more and more people frame Bitcoin as Bitcoin has to work here. Like it's, if it doesn't work here, we, we should just, you know, maybe we should give up on it. Cause if it doesn't work here, it's just, it's not going to work. It's never going to work. Um, and then, and then I think about that, the whole career risk thing and then the generational thing that we talked about earlier and you go, no, it probably is going to work now. It's probably going to work in 20. It's probably going to work in 21 and 22. It's going to work in 30 too. Oh, and it's going to work in 2040 as well too, as you just slowly transition from the 70-year-old that still thinks this is magic internet money for drug dealers who buy drugs on the internet and has never done the work. And it's just the decade plus amount of time that that rolls off. And you know, maybe there's some chance that it's it, that it's not Bitcoin because something happened. Bitcoin ends up being Ask Jeeves. And, you know, I don't want to piss off the maximalists for this, but I'm just saying there's a, you know, whatever. And, but like a non-sovereign form of money. And, uh, you know, I think that Bitcoin over its history has had a tremendous ability to get people to give up on it and cough it up into the hands of people that don't and that that's been an incredible trade every single time without exception so i'm always wary about people being like oh it's got to work it's it doesn't work now it's it's not gonna work and it's like uh, bitcoin may make you sell everything and then right after that it works <laughs> the, the so. way i've been uh, talking to people about it is uh if you don't see a material increase in price in the next 18 months what you will get is not Bitcoin failed. You will get people revisiting what Bitcoin is and why Bitcoin is important because one of the strong narratives right now is the macro mm. environment and the macro environment's here now. And so it's almost like that is a thesis that makes a lot of sense and is intuitive to a lot of people. If it's disproven, again, I'm with you, Bitcoin doesn't fail, right? But people go back to the drawing board of like, well, what is this thing? Right. right. And I think that that's a really important nuance because there are a lot of people who say, oh, if it doesn't work in 18 months, it's over. Mm -hmm. Right. And I don't think that it's over. I think that that narrative now comes into question. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and you got to kind of talk through, okay, well, if that didn't work in that time period, when, you know, what is the, the narrative that uh, ends up proving to have a higher degree of accuracy? Yeah. So, it's probably going to work, though. <laughs> listen. You ain't got to ask me what I think. You, you, you know where I stand. I think, uh, I, I think a lot of people, um, you know, we're getting to the point now where it's not so much uh, what do I think about Bitcoin. Now a lot of the conversations uh, with the people who, you know, in 18 and, and beginning in 19, even middle of 19, were kind of should I buy some, uh, what is this thing, kind of all that early education stuff. Now when I talk to those people, it's not – do you have exposure? 
It's how much have you increased your exposure, right? It's like they're, they're on, you know, stage two, three, four, et cetera. Uh, and uh, I have a buddy uh, who, uh, who bought some Bitcoin. Um, and uh, when it dropped, it basically dropped to his cost basis. And uh, I talked to him afterwards. I did not talk to him on that day. I called him a couple of days later and, and I basically was like, are you good? Right. And he goes, well, I guess I'm a Bitcoiner now because that shit was scary. <laughs> <laughs> right. But it was just this belief of like, hey, I, I wrote it out. I didn't panic. Right. I, I, you know, whatever. And he almost felt like he had earned the right now to enjoy whatever happens next. Mm. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. Obviously, it only benefits the people who kind of had skin in the game that day. But uh, I don't think that there's that many people who uh, held, for example, in the November to December 50% drop. I think a lot of people got shaken out there. Yeah. This one, I actually think a lot of people didn't get shaken out. It was more of kind of the leverage and the Wall Street and all that. And so people kind of earned their stripes now. And now they feel like, hey, you know, if I didn't sell it then, then I, you know, I can't ever sell it basically. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, all right, man, I appreciate you doing this. I think people will, uh, will enjoy it. I got tired of people uh, tweeting at me saying that we had to do a, a round two. So uh, <laughs> you, uh, you did not disappoint, but uh, we'll do it again. We'll, we'll do a round three at some point. Always a pleasure. All right, guys, thanks for listening to that episode. I hope you enjoyed it just as much as I did. My goal is to educate as many people with these conversations as possible. So please go subscribe on your favorite podcast channel leave a five-star rating, and a review. These things really help the podcast get higher up on the popularity charts, which ultimately brings more people to learn. Also, don't forget you can go to YouTube to watch each conversation in video format as well. Just search my name, Anthony Pompliano, on YouTube, and you'll find our channel with hundreds of awesome and informative videos. Thanks again for listening to this one, and I'll see you for the next one.